Uh, good morning. We're going to get started. All right. Is that going to work? Is that going to work? If I turn it up, does that work? Does that work? Is that catching my voice? Okay. I'll try to speak out. Well, I'm excited to be with y'all this morning. My name is Ada Moore. Um, I've been at Fort Worth Press for about four years now. Um, it's my fourth year in Bible study here. And uh, my husband's Ryan. He is on staff here. Um, and I'm excited to be studying Thessalonians with y'all, first and second, um, for these next few weeks. Um, we're going to take some time to look at these first ten verses that you studied in um, your group this morning, and um, basically, if you haven't been here for a lecture before, this is kind of a, if you didn't get something in small group, here's another learning format, here's another way to listen and process and think through the scripture that we've studied together, so that's kind of why we um, do lecture, and it's also a way to hear from other women um, in our church who are trying to learn and get better and use some of their teaching gifts um, with, with our, our, our sisters. So let me pray and we will uh, jump right in. Jesus, thank you so much for this day that you made. Um, I pray that we would uh, rejoice in it. I thank you for this time together to study your word and to learn more about you. I pray that today um, you would uh, use my words to um, really uh, embolden our hearts, um, but mainly, Lord, I just pray that you would become more beautiful and believable to us here. Um, we need your spirit to do that, so um, Father, please send your spirit here uh, and um, plant seeds in our hearts that would grow and produce grapefruit. We pray all this in your son's name, amen. Okay. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves reporting concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, when was the last time you guys went to a pep rally? Just wondering. <laughs> okay, I was a cheerleader in high school, shocker, um, and I can remember countless pep rallies in high school before football and basketball games, moments filled with encouragement and extreme hype. Um, I kind of get the feeling from these first verses in Thessalonians that Paul is in pep rally mode. He is full of encouragement, full of hope, and full of faith in what is happening in this small church. 
And that is amazing because this is not a high school gymnasium where the team is about to go play another team of relative size and like all the football stuff. Um, life is pretty hard to say the least for these first century Christians. So how can that be? How can Paul write so positively about the small church in Thessalonica when he himself, he himself is experiencing great trial in ministry and they are too. I want us to look at three ways that that's possible. And this is all on your outline if you've got it. There's some over here and some over... Did we have enough outlines? Okay, they're right over there. That's... You go get it yourself. <laughs> it's like my, me and my kids. Um, okay, Paul and these believers trust in who's at work. They are trusting in what works. And finally, they know how it works. So I'll just say that again. Who, what, and how. All right, let's look at how they're trusting and who works. This is verse 1. We find ourselves looking at the first century church. No running water. No indoor plumbing. No electricity. No publishing. Literacy is at a low. No phones. No apps. Nothing. This is my worst nightmare. Um, And yet the church exists. And it grows amidst a significant amount of persecution, I might add. Paul knows, however, that these are children of the living God. And he says as much when he claims that they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. We see two huge theological truths pronounced right here in the greeting. Jesus and God are one. There's no separating them. If you're in the Father, you're in Jesus because they are one. You literally cannot be all in two different things, just physics. Um, God and Jesus are not fighting over whose is whose. They are one. And if you are in Jesus, um, you are in God the Father. And this is where the identity of believers rests. Um, It's uh, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine kind of language here. So what does it mean to be in God and in Jesus? Okay, It means that God has rescued you and redeemed you by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He knew you before time began. He rescued you from your own brokenness and sin and redeemed you to be a part of his restoration plan for the world. Kind of like fixer upper, but like with people and the whole creation and times infinity. Okay. Paul has great confidence that these are God's people and that they have God's grace and his peace. When you are in Jesus and in God, you have his grace and his peace. They are his. These brothers, as we see in verse 4, are loved by God. And before we hear anything about what's going on in this church, which we're going to spend the next weeks discussing, we need to be aware of the big reality that it is God who works. There is no earthly reason this church should be growing and the gospel spreading. Certainly not to all of Macedonia. And yet it is. Because very simply, God is at work. Time, space, the past, the present, the future, the cosmos. They are all his. And God works. Think about creation. Think about the exodus. Think about the failures of Israel. The passage of time. Nothing has stopped God from working. And the most primary example I can think of is us. Here we are in Fort Worth, Texas, centuries later, learning about him, 
worshiping him, centering our lives around the one true God. He works. And failure is not, is not only not an option, it's impossible. These Thessalonians don't know us. And yet here we are standing on their shoulders. It's amazing. And it's because God works. I love this quote by Leslie Newbigin that I included in your outline. The church is launched. The church is a movement launched into the world the same way Jesus is sent into the world by the Father. This is pep rally language. <laughs> but the truth is that while it's incredibly freeing to rest in God being at work, unthwarted and undeterred, it can often be just as incredibly difficult to trust that he is working. And the irony is, is that our distrust in his work doesn't change the reality that he's working. It only changes how we respond and deal with how he's working. Let me say that again. Um, our distrust and mistrust in whether or not God's at work doesn't change whether or not he's working. It only changes how we respond and deal with how he's at work. Um, my oldest daughter, um, whose name is May, she's 10, she's in fifth grade. I was trying to think of the best way to describe this. She is like, she loves a task. She's an accomplisher. She's, you know, she's like my straight A student. She likes to be affirmed in her accomplishments. Um, she's a doer. Uh, and when she has something that needs to get done, we know about it because it's, we're her parents. Um, but she becomes a total stress ball and she nags us. She complains to us. She whines to us. She will end up in a ball of tears all over. Are we going to get there on time? Do I have the poster that I need? I need this. Have you gotten this yet? Like constant needs, like constant stress. And Ryan and I just crack up at this because we are like, well, one, it's like fifth grade. Um, and they're, they're serious problems to her. But two, it's just, she doesn't trust us at all. Like, the girl has been fed, clothed, and housed her entire life. And yet, when she's got to do a science project, it is like, we are nothing. Like, we have done nothing for her ever. Um, and she just totally breaks down. <coughs> Sound familiar? Um, worry, stress, fear, shame, cynicism. These are some of the things you might experience and what you will see in yourself and others when we struggle to first trust and rest in the presupposition that God is at work. And they really flow in opposition to the gospel. But they can't stop the kingdom from growing. So be encouraged. Y'all, I know the church in Thessalonica had bad days. I know there were broken people there doing the best that they can. I know that wrong words were spoken, there were doubts and miscommunications, and I know people got their feelings hurt. I know this because that church was full of people, and that's what people do. They mess up. At the same time, God is at work. This small band is in God and in Jesus. They cannot jinx it, and neither can you. And we are the proof of that. The kingdom grew and continues to grow because it's God who works and our fallibility and brokenness will never separate us from him because of our, our identity in Christ. But what does God do when he works? Well, Paul sees three characteristics emerge among the people of God and this countercultural triad is what works for the church. Um, 
And if you've read any other of, God, of Paul's epistles, um, this is just common language for him. To grow and flourish, and in turn, bringing flourishing to those who encounter it, we see three things. We see faith, we see love, and we see hope. So not only do we trust who, we need to trust who's working, we've got to trust what works. Faith, love, and hope. Okay. Do you guys know the hardest thing about running a marathon? The hardest thing about running a marathon is trying to fit it in every conversation. <laughs> okay. So I'm running the New York Marathon, New York City Marathon in November. And this all came out of a really good friend who I've, I've run with many times, um, won the lottery, and she was like, come do this with me. And we're all turning 40, and I get to run for a charity that I really care about, and so it just really worked out. Um, Lincoln profile. Um, so anyway, she is so funny because I, am, I, I like running, and I love doing it. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I think it's just a part of my makeup to do something extreme um, and, like, overexert myself. But my friend is a runner. Like, she's built like a runner. She's just, she's really good at it. Um, and she <laughs> is so funny because every time we run together or run a race together, she's like, listen, there's just going to come a point during this race that you have just got to trust your quads. You've got to trust <laughs> your legs and dig in and let them do the work. You've got to trust them. Okay. This is beautiful. Wonderful. She can trust her quads. <laughs> I cannot trust mine. <laughs> my mind and my quads work together, and they both say, that's enough. Let's stop here. And they also say, uh, we're not going any faster than this. This is where we are staying. Um, okay, in verses 2 and 3, what is working out of these believers, what the world and culture around them is seeing and experiencing is their faith, love, and hope. And the world is changing because of it. What God works in us, as Stott says so well, are these remarkable outgoing and productive traits. Let me say that again. Outgoing and productive traits. This is what God uses to advance his kingdom, and they are trustworthy. Calvin goes so far as to claim that here we have a brief definition of Christianity. You want to know what the Christian life looks like? Faith, love, hope. But what are they? Y'all, there's nothing terribly special about faith, hope, and love. In fact, they are so commonplace that every craft store in town has literal sections devoted to these simple words. Um, buy it for your kitchen. Hang it up. Even their definitions are broad enough to capture many different thoughts, feelings, words, etc. I mean, everyone experiences some form of faith, some form of love, some form of hope in their life. Let's simply define these words. Okay, faith. Believing. Hebrews 11 tells us it's being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Love, unconditional, persevering, sacrificial, laborious commitment. Hope, a confident expectation. This is not an if, but a when. What works to advance the church and God's kingdom is not these words. It is the certainty of what our faith, hope, and love are in. Let me say that again. It's not these words that advance the kingdom. It's the certainty of what our faith, hope, and love are in. You see, you can put your faith in just about anything. 
And you can love just about anything, and you can hope in just about anything. But if there's not certainty in those objects, it won't matter. I can hope in my quads all I want. My legs will not go faster. Here's the beauty of the gospel, though, and this is really amazing, you guys, because this speaks to certainty. With Christ, your faith can be small. Your love can be weak and imperfect, and even your hope can be weary. But it will not affect the sure reality that Christ has died, love, Christ is risen, faith, and Christ will come again, hope. He is certain and sure. And when we rest in this certainty, what grows? Faith gets stronger. Love digs in and gives more, and hope endures. There's no surprise that this young church had growing faith because it was in the Lord Jesus, or that their love for one another and their neighbors endured and labored on as they were united to their Savior Jesus, who sacrificed everything for them because he loved them. Or that their hope in his return to make all things right was sure and steady. Because the same risen Savior who revealed himself to Paul on the road to Emmaus had been revealed to them as well. So application here. What is the object of your faith? What are you believing in? From what source are you drawing love to pour out to others? To labor for others, not just sentimental love. What sustains your hope and is it certain? Y'all power. Money, comfort, education, theology, personality, success, and security, which are all good things. These can easily become the object we center our faith, hope, and love around. I just want to talk about comfort in that list for just a minute because I want to. Um, (laughs) Comfort. Feeling comfortable. Feeling okay. Feeling safe. Believing in ease. That life is found when life is easy. Only able to love and labor and commit when I feel comfortable. No demands to sacrifice and give of myself. Um, Y'all, are you hoping only in the exhale of a Friday night? That's not wrong. Sure, be revived by a break. Just don't put your hope in it for rescue. Comfort will not sustain you. And it won't love you back. And it is surely fleeting. And the issue is is that we just so easily fail and we are quick to hop on the roundabout again, coming back and back again to uncertain objects. So where should you turn? You've got to turn to Christ because Christ is certain, nothing else is. He lived, he died, he rose, and he's coming back. And this is certain and sure. But how will this work out in my life, in the life of the church? How will I in the church find faith, hope, and love growing in Christ and fighting back? Or we like to use the word repenting against the other objects I and um, we as a church want to be at the center of our faith, hope, and love. We've got to trust how it works. And we see this in verses 5 through 10. We see the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word. We see in the final verses of this chapter the story of the conversion of these believers. They're believing faith, they're turning from idols to serve the living God, their love, and they're waiting for Christ's return, their hope, all came through the power of the Spirit and God's Word. And in this instance, um, God's Word is really the preaching of the resurrected Christ by the apostles. They don't have a copy of the Bible. They are hearing the message from the apostles, those who walked and talked with Jesus and saw his resurrected body. 
I want to commend to you, though, that this same power, this Holy Spirit that turned these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, the same word that compelled them to believe in the one true God is still sustaining the church today. And I think it's crucial to understand that what we see in Thessalonica is the hearing of this word and the doing of this word was tantamount in the life of this young church. Even in affliction, their joy was known. Let me say that again. Even in affliction, their joy was known. Persecution and exclusion did not keep them from sharing the gospel and the sacrificial love of Jesus with each other and the world around them. This is the work of the Spirit and the power of the Word, and it never stops. I love this great quote by John Stott. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we are talking about. It is not enough to receive the gospel and pass it on. We must embody it in our common life of faith, love, joy, peace, righteousness, and hope. So just briefly some application as I wrap up here. Let me just speak to the members of Fort Worth Press here. Y'all, it will not matter how great the preaching from our pulpit is, how true or how doctrinally sound our Bible study is, if we are not loving each other and our neighbors as a testimony to the power and the truth of that preached word. Let me say that again. It will not matter how great the preaching from our pulpit is, how true or how doctrinally sound our Bible study is, if we are not loving each other and our neighbors as a testimony to the power and truth of that preached word. They go hand in hand, and it's God's Holy Spirit that moves that word into living testimony. Okay, so do you want to see the church grow? Do you want to see God's kingdom grow? Let's pray that we would trust in the God who works, that our faith, hope, and love would find their object in Jesus Christ, and that God's Spirit would empower and embolden the words of God into living actions of love and sacrifice for our brothers and sisters and the neighbors around us. And it will certainly grow. Pep rally! (laughs) That's it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for the gifts of faith, hope, and love. Lord, um, I pray that we would turn away from objects that we long to um, see work and... um, do things for us, but that are not certain. Um, Father, would you use your spirit, embolden our hearts. Would this word become living and active in us? Um, Would our love for one another and our love for our neighbors um, extend so far and reach so far that um, we are known for it um, here in Fort Worth? And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.